Welcome, friends and comrades, to another interview segment hosted by the Midwestern Marx Institute for Marxist Theory and Political Analysis. Today, we will be speaking with Jody Brar about the World Anti-Imperialist Platform. Uh, she's the spokesperson of the platform, and she's also the vice chair of the Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist-Leninist. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Jody. Thank you for having me. Yeah, awesome. Uh, yeah, can you tell us a bit about the World Anti-Imperialist Platform? Um, when was it founded? What is its purpose? Um, and we saw that the leading United Socialist Venezuelan Party is actually a part of it. A part of it. So, can you tell us what other significant socialist and communist parties are a part of it? Sure. So the platform was basically founded uh, back in October last year, and it was really in response to what we saw was a real crisis in the socialist movement um, around the response to the escalation of war in Ukraine. Um, and became very clear that there's a, a massive divide amongst people who call themselves socialist, communist, anti-imperialist over how to evaluate this war and therefore how to respond to it. And that's a real problem because, of course, you know, communist, socialist, anti-imperialist, they should be right at the heart and the centre of the anti-war movement, of the working class movement, giving direction and leadership to the workers everywhere. So... What the platform stands for is what we consider to be the Marxist anti-imperialist analysis, which says that one side in this war is waging an aggressive uh, anti-worker, anti-people uh, war of imperialist plunder, and that's the NATO alliance. Um, and Ukraine is NATO's proxy force against Russia. NATO and the led by the USA, has been gunning for Russia for a very long time. In fact, all the imperialists for the last more than 100 years have been wanting to break up and destroy Russia and loot its territory. They had a bit of a taste of that when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. But in recent years, you know, with Russia becoming once more a kind of strong, independent, anti-imperialist country, um, again, the, the, the imperialists are really desperate to kind of to loot its territory. So our analysis is uh, that it's very important workers understand that they actually have a side in this war because there's an, an imperialist side, uh, unjust, aggressive uh, war being waged, which was totally provoked actually by the West, by, by NATO, um, using Ukraine as a proxy. It's not a national liberation war for Ukrainians. Ukrainian... Ukrainian people lost their sovereignty at the time of the Maidan coup, what was left of it. They lost an awful lot of it in 1991. Uh, they lost the last shred of it in 2014 with the Maidan coup. And since 2014, Ukraine has been a proxy for the, the USA and NATO. It's been basically run by the CIA, as, as we all know, and, and you know, totally looted and torn apart. So it's really important for workers to understand that Russia is on the just side of this war. Russia is trying to defend itself against imperialist attack. Um, it was very patient, in fact, in coming to the support of the anti-fascist, uh, Russian-speaking, coup-resistant section in the east of the country, which has been fighting for nine years now against the West-backed you know, NATO and fascist troops in Ukraine. So really the... the the platform was formed in response to the escalation, in response to the crisis in our movement to, to combat the idea 
that Russia is an imperialist country waging an aggressive war in Ukraine, which is essentially imperialist propaganda. But unfortunately, there's a whole load of socialists and communists and anti-imperialists, so-called, who are parroting this propaganda and confusing the working class and making them feel that they have no side. But the truth is that we do have a side. There's imperialism and there's anti-imperialism right now in the world. And the Ukraine war is making that really, really clear. And it's very important for workers to realize that we need the anti-imperialist side to win. We really, really, really can't see uh, another victory for imperialism right now. It will be an absolute um, debacle for the cause of workers' uh, liberty and freedom. Very well said, um, especially in this... Uh the preeminence of the inter-imperialist narrative in the left, which is so completely absurd and it's grounded on a half-baked uh, so-called class analysis, which actually doesn't understand the global dimension of, of the class struggle. But um, I, I, we really appreciate the, the initiative of a global anti-imperialist network. Uh, Anti-imperialism and the lack thereof in the dominant parts of the U.S. left was one of the, the reasons, amongst many others, of course, that, we, that prompted us to, to found the Midwestern Marx Institute. Can you tell us what your thoughts are on the role that the struggle against imperialism plays today as a part of the global class struggle? I mean, it's absolutely, right now, it's front and center. It's the number one most important issue in the world today is this fight, this struggle between the imperialist and anti-imperialist blocs. And the reason for that is imperialism, the world global capitalist system, is in the mother of all crises right now. It's the biggest crisis that the world has ever seen in terms of capitalist economics. It's been deepening steadily, actually, since you know the, the, the 1970s. Um, there were little moments of reprieve. For example, there was a big looting bonanza for the imperialists uh, when the Soviet Union fell, and that gave the, their system a kind of shot in the arm. A whole load of riches fell into their lap. But it also created actually a situation where the contradictions within the system between the workers and the capitalists were accelerated, were made deeper, because all of the gains that workers in the West had made as a result of the post-war settlement, which was really made under the threat of socialism, all our gains like you know, decent jobs, decent pay and conditions, decent housing, free education, free healthcare. I know in America it was slightly different, but you know, you basically had the same kind of a settlement if it wasn't structured in exactly the same way as our welfare states. Um, those bribes that were paid to get, keep social peace and allow imperialism to get back off its knees after World War II in Europe, US imperialism was strong after World War II, but in Europe, uh, imperialism was, was basically dead, you know. Um, only British imperialism was still sort of limping along and only just, you know, and all of the imperialist powers of Europe were bailed out by the USA after World War II because USA, US imperialism emerged stronger from both world wars and became the dominant imperialist force in the world. So, um, oh yeah, so right now, sorry, I was trying to try to remember what the question was. Right now, if we see... Um, this crisis, which has been developing and deepening the crisis of capitalist overproduction, 
which is the fundamental problem that makes capitalism fail, right? And since we have imperialism, that crisis is now global. Um, it has become so deep. Um, 2008, when all the banks collapsed, that showed how deep the overproduction crisis was. It was really a, a load of bad debt in the system that couldn't really be, couldn't be dealt with, but, you know, because the masses have no purchasing power, right? They can't buy all the goods that have been produced. There is an overproduction crisis. And there are so many symptoms of this crisis all over us. There's, there's, um, there's speculation on the stock exchange, you know, there's big asset bubbles. There's, there's bubbles of all kinds because uh, when our rulers can't, or, you know, the imperialists can't make money anymore out of producing and selling goods to the masses, then they try to make money at each other's expense by, you know, gambling um, and, uh, you know, kind of stock exchange and, and land speculation and, and trying to find places to park their money. Uh, and, and, you know, essentially that isn't producing new wealth, it's just getting wealthy at someone else's expense. Um, so this crisis has been getting deeper and deeper, but it's particularly coming to a head now. And it's the reason that the war drive is also accelerating, because in 2008, how did the ruling class escape from the crisis they had created, they printed money. And they didn't get the immediate effects of their money printing because they're using, they, they printed money in currencies which are international. That is, they can force countries all over the world to use their currency. And what that means is the effect of their, of their money printing, which is of course inflation, the effect of that was diluted and spread across the world. So initially, it seemed like, you know, they did all this money printing and it was like nothing happened. And they thought they'd found this magic bullet. And, and it spawned all kinds of theories like the, the MMT, magic money tree, what do they call it? Modern monetary theory. It spawned all, all kinds of ideas that, oh, um, it's fine to just print lots of money. Although everybody knows really that it isn't fine. But it seemed like it was all right. Everybody was really happy. Oh, we can just print all the money that we need. Asset prices become really big. But guess what? Wages and pensions and savings are all being steadily devalued. It looked as if they were getting away with all of that. And then suddenly they found after loads more rounds of money printing, they printed money to bail out the stock exchange in um, 2022. Uh, no, sorry, 2020. They printed money. Um, to uh, fund all kinds of COVID measures and big pharma. They printed a whole load of money to fund Ukraine. The arms monopolies sending all kinds of things to Ukraine um, and to prop up Ukraine's economy, which has basically failed. Um, and now they're printing money at the most insane rate to bail out failing banks again. They're trying to hide from us that the whole banking system is in meltdown and actually the global economy is in meltdown and they're trying to hide it by printing more money. And all that's gonna happen is inflation is gonna go through the roof at a rate that is absolutely unprecedented and which they will not be able to get any control over uh, because they're fueling it constantly. So by trying to stave off a social crisis that would surely erupt if the banks around the world started failing, they're printing money to make it look as if everything's fine, but all they're doing is kicking the can down the road and meaning that when the crisis bursts out ferociously, it will be even worse, even deeper, even more unstoppable. And so 
really, if you look right now, it's it's very clear that the imperialists think the only way to save themselves is to get their hands on the territory, the resources of Russia and of China and loot them. And maybe in that way, they can find a way out. But without that, you know, they're heading for the buffers. They're, they're really, as I say, they're kind of teetering on the abyss right now. And actually, you know, it's not going to be long before the whole system goes hurtling over the edge. Wow, that's so interesting to hear that analysis of money printing and MMT. Um, I hadn't heard that before, but I, I mean, totally agree that the financial systems in meltdown are on the precipice of a crisis. Uh, Biden just bailed out the big Silicon Valley banks in California and the media didn't make much of it because they didn't want to compare it to the 2008 financial crisis. But they admitted that, you know, the whole system almost came crashing down. So uh, very interesting. Uh, our next question is, um, I think it's clear that we're living through a nodal point in universal history. Um, the tides are turning away from the Western capitalist imperialist dominated world towards a world where the global south and the east stand up and reclaim a position of leadership in the global arena. Um, so some have even gone as far as to call this a post-Columbian age or an era that moves past the last 500 years of European and American global dominance. Um, some people have also called it the rise of multipolarity. Um, so what do you think this current situation offers the global struggle for socialism? I mean, for me, it's really a continuation of what was started by the Bolsheviks in October 1917. You know, the reality is that ever since the October Revolution, the imperialist system has been living on borrowed time. Now, I said already that if it wasn't for the USA being made stronger by two world wars and being in a position to bail out the other imperialist powers uh, after World War II, I we'd already be living in a socialist world, right? Now, we've had some ups and downs in terms of the progress of history, but the truth is that, you know, imperialism's days are absolutely numbered and the people, the masses of the world, are not just going to sit calmly by and allow themselves to be looted and plundered and controlled forever. And it was October that taught the people that they can fight and they can win, that they can stand on their own feet, that they don't have to accept being dominated by a technologically superior power, that the, that the uh, backward peoples of the world can catch up and take over, right? You know, I mean, remember what happened with the, to the USA when the Soviets launched the space satellite Sputnik in the 1950s. They had the shock of their lives. You know, they, they've been so busy telling themselves that, you know, oh, we're the best, we're the kings of everything, we've got the best technology, we're better than, and no one can catch up with us, we're the good old American way, and that it's something intrinsically American to be, you know, to be the best at technology, where, and, you know, 50 years before, we all thought it was something intrinsically British, you know, to have the best technology and be able to beat everybody. Well, guess what? Techno technology is something that can't be contained. Once it's out there, it's out there. You know, it was superior technology that allowed the Europeans to conquer the world 500 years ago. Um, and it was superior technology that enabled the, the growth and development of the Soviet Union. Having a monopoly on advanced technology is the key to the survival of the imperialist system because on the one hand they have their huge stores of wealth which enables them to uh, attract all the rest of the wealth that's in the world when anywhere that's part of the global marketplace but on the other hand to enable them to to take their diktat 
that wealth of their money needs to be backed up by the power of the military. And the military's power, when it comes to imperialism, is based in having the most advanced technology. And the thing that's scaring the absolute bejesus out of the NATO military, which is basically the USA with the others kind of tailing behind, is that they are losing the monopoly of advanced uh, armaments. In fact, I would say they've pretty much already lost it. Um, but they've said, you, you hear them when they talk about this, you know, uh, oh, 2025, 2025 is our deadline to stop China. Uh, you know, they, they're recognizing that, you know, very shortly, if it hasn't happened already, they're, they're not going to have that monopoly anymore. And without that monopoly, they can't dictate to people around the world. And it's really interesting to see how even countries like, you know, we know that obviously China had a socialist revolution in 1949 and its whole attitude and outlook and the way it thinks of itself and the way it tries to build its country um, you know, is based on independence and taking care of its people, right? Well, India didn't have a socialist revolution. It's a great tragedy of the Indian people that so many Indians still live in abject poverty and inequality in Indian society is horrific. You know, a whole load of people there, you know, don't even have, you know, homes, let alone sanitation, education, you know, things that the Chinese, problems the Chinese solved a long time ago. All the same, India's a big country. It's a developing country. It's a country that now has a strong technological base, now has a huge um, uh, programming base. Um, it's, it also has an ancient culture and civilization, right, and all those things. And it's had, you know, 70, 80 years of independence. It's no longer willing to sit around abjectly, you know, begging to be allowed to be acknowledged in the world. You know, it's recognizing that it's an important place. And why should it be pushed about? You know, even, even the most um, pro-capitalist, you know, uh, and big bourgeois of its leaders don't feel that sense of inferiority uh, any longer that, in, that makes them feel like they should just take whatever the imperialists give them um, and be grateful. You know, it's very interesting to see how Indian attitudes shifted at the beginning of the Ukraine war. And, you know, there's like a, a chain of events when you see, for example, you know, India had, uh, has been friendly with the USA for a long time, uh, has difficult relations with uh, China, but it has also had a long history of friendly relations with first the Soviet Union and then with Russia. Now, it joined the Quad which was very much a kind of US attempt to try to have an anti-China alliance in the Pacific. But then what happened? Suddenly, the USA and Britain announced the AUKUS alliance, which is like, you know, <laughs> the white imperialists in the Pacific all getting together except for Britain. Don't know what Britain's doing there, right? Apart from it's white, because it's not over there. But obviously Britain is a finance capital institute, it's an imperialist power, right? And Australia's a kind of junior imperialist, and so they're getting together and not only are they getting together in AUKUS and it's like a, you know, by the way, Japan and India, you don't count, but also they're transferring, having told India they shouldn't have nuclear weapons, it's a bad thing to do. They're transferring nuclear weapons, nuclear submarines to Australia as part of this deal. Well, that was quite a kick in the face, I think, to the Indians who'd been trying to, you know, play along and, you know, be good 
good partners in the world and expected to be treated like equals to suddenly find they're on the outside of this new deal. And then along comes the sanctions war and the USA just and Britain just demanding that everybody, you know, mess up their own economies in the interests of US imperialist interests. And, um, you know, the Indians just basically said, no, thank you. And what's really interesting to see about that is that from the top to the bottom of Indian society, from the rich to the poor, everybody agrees with that. That's wonderfully said. It's so important to keep in mind the materialist analysis and how that grounds the the sort of dynamic and reflects itself in various ways in global power struggles. And um, that's one of the, uh, I think, uh, one of the things that China's leading the world in right now is technology. Um, and that's not uh, irrelevant to its current developing position as uh, as one of the leaders and the beacons of, anti- of the anti-imperialist struggle in a new world order. Um, uh, so our next question is that uh, the, bo- the moral-bound imperialist camp, cognizant of its own decline, seems to be walking humanity up to the precipice of nuclear Armageddon. Uh, Through reckless uh, proxy wars against Russia and a turn towards the containment of socialist China, something that has prompted U.S. generals to predict that we'll be at war with China by next year, the world has once again returned to the anxiety of potential nuclear destruction. Has our ruling class in the Anglo-European world enhanced their propaganda tactics and censorship of dissenting voices like those of our institute? Uh, In what ways can we, the inhabitants within the belly of the beast, struggle against the actions of our ruling class and link this fight that we have in our country to the global class struggle against imperialism? That's a really good question. I think the most important thing we have to do is give leadership and a clear analysis to workers in our countries that helps them have confidence in themselves in the movement for socialism, in the movement against imperialism. Number one, it may seem in the West when you're used to being so surrounded by imperialist propaganda that socialism is a kind of tiny fringe movement. But the truth is it represents the interests of the vast masses of humanity. And in most of the world, it's a mass movement. In most of the world, there's nothing weird about being a communist, right? one first step in having confidence in yourself and is to understand that. The next thing is to study Marxism, because, of course, as soon as you do and you understand not only that this system has it has contradictions which are absolutely inherent and can't be got past within the confines of this system. But what you also discover is that there is a way that history works. There is a role for us to play in helping society move beyond this system. And that actually, we're coming really close to a big revolutionary crisis. So we can look at this as a kind of, oh, my God, you know, we look around us in our societies and it's like, oh, it's the last days of Rome. Everything is so degenerate, decrepit, crazy. Everyone's miserable and broken. And isn't it awful? And you can wring your hands and just say, oh, my God, you know, just bring on the nuclear war. Everything's everything's broken. Everything's dying. Or you can say these are the signs of a system in total crisis and decay. And the plus side of that is we are coming so close to the next revolutionary outburst and we have an opportunity coming up very soon now 
to really start to make a difference and to help humanity through and out the other side and to, and to get rid of this system that's causing all these problems once and for all. So there's a positive side to seeing how bleak and broken everything's becoming. And I think it's really important to, 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 to bear that in mind for people and, and help them see that. And um, you know, studying Marxism helps you to do that, gives you that historical perspective that allows you to put things into context and not feel overwhelmed by what's difficult. Um, but the other thing, I think it's really, it's really good to recognize that this anxiety about nuclear war is, on the one hand, it's, it's the imperialists who develop these weapons, right, which are so horrible. And they, the, the only ones who ever really used them have been the USA and also uh, Britain when it comes to the depleted uranium shells, right, which, we know what horrible, you know, those are the kind of nuclear weapons they're using all the time, whenever they can get away with it, which have horrible results, but which they kind of pretend like they're, like it's no big deal. But we know that it is, right? So when it comes to, um, you know, using big nuclear bombs, the only country that's ever done it was the USA. It didn't do it to defeat Japan. Japan was already defeated. It didn't do it um, because it had to do it. It did it to show the Soviet Union, look what we've got, we're coming for you next, know your place, watch out. Um, the only way that the USA is stopped from using those weapons is when the enemy it's fighting has them too. And it's, it's just one of the weird facts of the world we live in that to guarantee peace, you need good weapons. You know, we're looking forward to being out the other side of all this where there's no imperialism left in the world and we can stop wasting our time and energy and money on having good weapons. But right now, you know, the people of the world owe a debt of thanks to the Soviet Union, to China, to North Korea for developing strong nuclear deterrents, which have stopped a big nuclear war. And I think we can see they're continuing to stop a big nuclear war because all of the saber rattling about using nuclear weapons comes from NATO and the USA. And at the same time, in reality, when they're going up against nuclear armed powers, they're using proxy forces. And I think one of the reasons is they don't want to get into a nuclear exchange. Right. So there is a level of sanity in there somewhere. I mean, I, you know, I admit, you know, that our rulers are um, crazy and when it really comes to it, am I sure they would never push the button and do something ridiculous? Not totally sure. But if we look at what's going on, we can see a lot of the scare tactics around nuclear weapons, I think, are really aimed at exactly what you said there, which was producing anxiety in the people. What they want us to do when we see this increasing drive to war is if we can't side with them and, and, be, and be made to be all jingoistic and, and on board with their war effort, we at least should be neutralised. And one of the ways of neutralising us is telling us that the enemy is also imperialist. Another way of neutralising us is turning us into pacifists where we go, oh my God, the threat of nuclear war is so important that I'd rather just allow imperialism to carry on than fight it. Because if we, if we push it too far, nuclear annihilation will happen. They are blackmailing us with this fear. I grew up with so much literature about what will happen to the world if there's a nuclear war. It was all really terrifying. I went off and joined CND, you know, and had that like, oh my God, doom and gloom mentality. But that was, you know, many years ago. Um, my kids have got it, you know, 
times 10 because we get all the um, the doom cult of the environmental movement on top of the doom cult of the nuclear war movement. But really, if we think about it, the only way to guarantee humanity's future is to get rid of imperialism. So we need to just push past these fears and anxieties they push over us. The best way to ensure there's no nuclear war is to overthrow the imperialist ruling classes. And everything that helps that to happen, every movement that's weakening imperialism and undermining it at its base, which fundamentally is what the growth of this anti-imperialist bloc is doing. It's cutting away from underneath an imperialism that's already in crisis, cutting away its ability to save itself and to keep looting the world. And all of that is really positive. And what we need to do is help the workers in our countries see this is a positive development for the future of humanity. That's wonderfully said. And unfortunately, we do live in a world where the one thing that can uh, help you defend your country, as we've seen you know, with the DPRK and, and the attempted attacks against it, is nuclear weapons. And in part, we have to thank uh, two Americans for that, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg who were the ones that leaked the, the key information that allowed the Soviets to develop the nuclear weapons that uh, balanced global forces. Absolutely. Well, um, I guess I'm going to have to go, right? So I'm so sorry it was a short one. No, no worries. worries. Is there anything you'd like to plug or, or shout out before you go? Thanks for being with us. <laughs> no problem. And, you know, if, you, if you've got other questions and you want me back some other time, just let me know. In the meantime, uh, I would like to direct people's attention to the, the URLs here by my name, uh, WAP21.org. It's the website of the World Anti-Imperialist Platform. Uh, the Paris Declaration was our founding document. You can find it on the website. Um, it's really important, I think, for people to... Um, read that document, understand the analysis it's giving. If you agree with it, find any organization, you know, any party organization around the world, wherever you happen to be, get them to endorse it, get them to contact the platform and get involved with our work. You know, the whole thing we're trying to do is bring together uh, a, a pole of uh, attraction for the real anti-imperialists so that we can make our voice bigger, make our muscles stronger in the working class movement and help to bring this understanding to the working people that they have, they need to be on a side, right? It really matters to humanity that the imperialists are defeated in this coming conflicts and or the present and coming conflicts of, of this period. It, it's, a, it's a huge deal and people need to understand that. So just so you know, we also have a news site. I think it's wapnews.org. Uh, if you use Telegram, you can find it on platform news there's a channel there which you know they update with the with the updates and that's really worth a follow um so yeah check us out and please find the paris declaration share it with people talk about it with people um and try and get involved with the work that we're doing thank you again so much for coming on comrades and uh thank you to all who watched take care jody great talking to you cheers <laughs>